well, two weeks out of the pulpit. Um, I forgot to get my headset. Um, I, uh, <laughs> I had all kinds of things mixed up this morning, but, uh, but I'm glad to be um, before you so that we might uh, turn to 1 Corinthians again and continue our series there. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we'll look at the first nine verses uh, there this morning. The series title is The Call to Be Spiritual, you'll recall. The title of this particular sermon for these nine verses is Stop Being a Baby with an exclamation point on the end. All right, with that title, I'll ask you this question. How would you describe your level of maturity in the Christian faith? If, if, we, if we had you all log into some computer, you know, uh, uh, survey, and you had to rank yourself from 1 to 10, right? Where would you rank yourself in terms of spiritual maturity? Would you call yourself well-discipled if you were uh, meeting a new Christian friend? If, if, if someone brought up different um, topics of the Christian faith, would you feel comfortable talking about those things? Would you describe yourself as pretty discerning and applying Christian truth to how you make decisions or, or how you approach relationships or what you do with your money or, or what you decide to wear or, or, or whether to participate with people of different faiths? Do you feel comfortable navigating those applications of spiritual truth? A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the great privilege Christians have in understanding God's plan for us and for the world. you remember that? We looked at the end of chapter 2, and there Paul said that God had given us His wisdom. We got to look inside His eternal plan, the great privilege that we have in that. And in order that we might get it, He also gives us access to His Spirit. An intimate access with the Holy Spirit who illumines His Word for us. What a platform for massive spiritual growth. I mean, God doesn't just bring us into His family and then leave us to fend for ourselves. He gives us His wisdom and His Spirit. And you would think with those two incredible gifts those divine gifts, we would be the most mature of all people. And yet many in the church are stagnant in their growth as a Christian. Perhaps you would put yourself in that category this morning. Many are content to maintain their low level of maturity in, Christian, in the Christian faith. Despite the grace of God that made them new creatures caused them to be born again as, as spiritual people, different than the natural people they used to be. Sadly, the church is often filled with people content to rely on their natural instincts in navigating life. Content to employ earthly wisdom and put their faith in people who are made of flesh just like they are, rather than God 
who is spirit. Such childish behavior, friends, isn't fitting of the church. It's not right. It's not okay to not pursue growth in faith. It's not okay, men, to let your wives be the spiritual leaders in the home. It's not okay to ignore discipleship, both discipling others and being discipled. It's not okay to shirk your responsibility to seek Christ more deeply and pursue spiritual maturity. God sent his apostles to Corinth to say, God sent his apostle to Corinth to say as much to that church, but we need to hear it too, right? I mean, we need to hear it because we know this because God preserved it in his word, and so it's before us today. So, so as you hear these verses, as you hear this loving rebuke of Paul, his, his, the reasoning he will give and the calling to a, a newness of vision for us, I want you to ask yourself some hard questions along the way. I'll try to point out a few questions, but perhaps you'll be thinking of your own questions to sort of turn this text on yourself. This is a really easy text to be like, you know, Sarah really needs to grow here and be pointing to other people right? No, no, let's turn that text to ourselves and ask some really hard questions of ourselves this morning. So let's turn our attention to the Word of God, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verses 1 through 9. God speaks to us here, friends. Lean in. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving, behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. God's building. Let me pray again, just for a moment. Father, send your spirit and power as we look to your word. We pray that you'll make it plain to us. Apply it to us. Shape us, we ask. Speak to us, Lord. Your people are listening. Amen. Well, the big idea of this text is a rather simple one. God's people have to grow up. That's it. God's people have to grow up. Christ came to save a people who would do some things. He, he, he came to create a new people for a purpose. A people who would serve together, who would grow together, help each other grow, who would worship together, reach the world together. They cannot stay where they are when they're saved. They can't just simply stay there in first gear. They can't stay in that toddler stage. 
They have to grow up. There's work to do in the church, friends. We've got to grow up. Important work for the Lord is before us. I mean, Paul said it this way to Titus. This is Titus chapter 2 and 14. Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Earlier in the book, he had said to Titus that those that are outside the faith, they're they're ill-equipped to do any good work. So Christ came to redeem a people, to purify a people, to build up a people so that they would be capable and, yea, zealous for good works. To the Ephesians, Paul said it this way in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 12. The body of Christ is to be built up until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood like that of even Christ Jesus himself. We got to grow up, friends. God saved us so that we would do his bidding, do his work, get out there on his mission. He saved Christians so that he would have an obedient, pure people who were eager and able to do all that he planned for them. The Christian church is to be built up together, unified in the faith, growing to the maturity of even the Savior himself. Stunning, isn't it? We've got to grow up. We've got to make some steps forward. We've got, to, we've got to increase in where we are in the faith. It's an incredible goal, a stunning vision of what God calls us to. And because of this, God's people cannot remain infants. We can't stay babies. Babies are cute, but, you know, they've got to grow up. They cannot survive on the Bible reading of yesteryear. They cannot take their best thinking or the best idea from the business world and kind of mishmash it with Christian thinking. They can't take the best advice the world has to offer instead of what God himself has to offer. No, God's people have to grow up. They have to mature in their knowledge of Christian doctrine. They have to deepen in their understanding of what it means to be in Christ. They have to grow up and live as they were meant to be, as God's spiritual people, His called out holy people. As we walk through this passage, this sobering text, I want you to think of Paul throwing the Corinthians a rope so that they might climb up to to spiritual maturity. Imagine this rope having three knots tied in it so they could kind of make that climb up the rope, and each of the knots has a word on it. Three of them, and that's how we'll walk through this passage. Rebuke, reason, and remember. That's the three knots on this rope. So the first knot on the rope is rebuke, and that's what we see here. Paul rebuking his Christian friends in Corinth, The rebuke is this, staying a baby Christian isn't right. We see that in verses 1 through the first part of verse 3. Look at verse 1 again. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now let me say right away that 
many people have wrongly taken this passage and suggested this category of Christian, this, this category of sort of fleshly Christians, backsliding for years and decades kind of a Christian. That's not what this text is talking about. I hope to make that very plain. But the rebuke is this, staying a baby Christian isn't right. Now, it can be hard to distinguish unconverted people in the church from those who are converted but remain really immature in the faith. Perhaps you've even had a conversation with your spouse, uh, you know, thinking about somebody at church saying, do you think that person's really saved or do you think they're just really immature in the faith? I've had those conversations. Not conversations meant to be hypocritically, you know, judging someone, but rather, how can we minister to them? But they do look a lot alike. If you don't know much about the Christian faith that you were born into, right, and you're not in the faith at all, your lives can look a lot alike. I mean, when someone first makes a profession of faith, of course they are newly born again and they haven't had the time or the Spirit's help or even the aid of other Christians yet to think deeply about the faith or to contemplate what it means that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing or why Paul says to live as Christ and to die as gain. They haven't thought through all the implications of those things. And so their lack of depth of understanding and their never having thought through how to live out the gospel can make them look like people of the flesh, can make them look like non-Christians. Now don't hear me wrong, baby Christians are good things, right? We want baby Christians in this church. We want people to cross over from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We want people to come to faith, and when they do, they are by definition infants infants in Christ, but they're not supposed to stay that way. That's the point. They're supposed to be discipled and to be willing to be discipled. So it's a two-way street, right? The church can fail by not discipling, but new Christians can fail by, by you know, kind of stiff-arming discipleship. So I would just ask you, where are you in your walk? You who declare that you follow Jesus, where are you in your Christian walk? Are you continuing to grow, or have you kind of plateaued a long time ago? Do you feel like you're all set, that you don't need any more Bible study? you feel like you've got all there is to know about Jesus, and others can dive deeper, but you're going to kind of stay right where you are? Are you content with merely knowing, and, and I say merely only in terms of numeric, not of, of, of uh, value. Are, are, are you content with merely knowing that Jesus loves you because the Bible tells you so, and that's where you're going to park? Well, for those who remain infants in Christ, part of the way to answer this is people that remain in that infancy, they can become unteachable. They can, they can harden themselves to further discipleship. Look at how Paul says it there in the, in, in the text. In one, he says, I could not address you as spiritual people. I mean, what a slap in the face, right? I mean, Ryan, can you imagine me walking up to you and saying, I can't even talk to you like you're a Christian. That's what he's saying here, right? And, and, and then uh, he goes on there in verse 2, and he says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. 
I mean, Marcia, can you imagine I go up to you and I say, I wanted to talk to you about some deep things of the faith, but you can't handle it. So we gotta, we got to stay right here in the shallow end of the pool. That's what he's saying. It's a rebuke. right? So we've got to hear the, the force of it. We've got to hear the, 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 the sobriety of it. Baby Christians and non-Christians have this in common. They can be open to the elementary principles of the faith, but glaze over when anything beyond it is shared. Sad thing. And it, like I said, it makes it difficult to know whether somebody's a, a baby Christian or not a Christian at all. It's not that Paul didn't teach the deeper aspects of the Christian faith when he says, I gave you milk. It's not like he only gave anybody milk, right? That's not quite what he's saying here. We know that he went beyond merely evangelizing people and teaching them the great truths of the, of the Christian faith. He had known nothing among them except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, chapter 2 and verse 2. And that doesn't simply mean a, a, you know, a ten-word Christian gospel presentation. He's talking about all the truths that emanate out of, uh, out of Christ's cross. Not simply short, simple things. And of course, this letter, if you just look at the letter itself, I mean, it is full of mature arguments for how to live out the gospel. So it's not like Paul has, has never shared difficult things. And if you read Peter, you'd know this for sure, because 2 Peter 3.16, Peter wrote that Paul's teachings are often hard to understand, Right? So again, it's not that Paul held back in his great commission work of, of teaching them all that Christ had commanded. It's rather that the Corinthians saw the meat as of no importance, content to sip only on the easy parts. I think of myself as a picky eater growing up, nibbling around the outside of the plate and not getting to the meatier parts. Christians staying immature, people in the church staying infants in Christ, friends, it isn't right. It's like teenagers with pacifiers. It's like adults throwing a fit because they didn't get enough sleep the night before, or a father making fun of his daughter when she tries something hard and fails. These things aren't appropriate. They're not right. These are childish, infantile, puerile things. Growth maturation, increasing in understanding and appropriate behavior. This is what children are created to do, and it's certainly what Christians were created to do as well. Nevertheless, the Corinthians had persisted in their immaturity. Look at the second half of 2 into 3 now. Even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. They had persisted in their immaturity. Think about this for a minute. Think about the wrongness of this. A church can be full of those who know the essential elements of the gospel, but have no ability to talk about its beautiful complexities and rich implications. It's like saying, I want life, but I really don't want it abundantly. It, it, it makes no sense. It's just, it's just wrong-headed. Now, to, now, to know that I once was blind to who Jesus was, but now I see him as my Savior, that is for sure a wonderful 
glorious truth. But it's just tragic for Christians to never think on the ramifications of Christ's righteousness being imputed to them. I mean, the eternal security it provides for Christians and the realization of God's delight in us as a result. I mean, we've got to push past infancy. It's tragic to remain a baby Christian and never contemplate the freedom that Jesus bought for me, the freedom from sin, because of this truth of there being no condemnation for me because I'm in Christ Jesus. Thinking through that, friends, contemplating that, growing in, in your depth of understanding in these truths, that's right. That's what Christians were made to do. It's tragic to not find joy in trials, for example, because you've never sought to understand God having purposes in them. And we could go on. But if this is the case, if a church is full of people that are immature like this, they're unable to fulfill any meaningful roles in God's church. They're unfit to teach or mentor others or to raise their own children in the faith even, much less take on leadership roles in the Christian church. And so all of a sudden the church teeters on the brink because nobody's grown up enough to steer the ship. What's more, immature Christians are unable to see the goodness of submitting to those God places over them. I mean, our lives are relationship after relationship of submitting to others that God has placed over us. But people of the flesh war against submission. They see it as bad. See God's plan as, as not good. Immature Christians are unable to deal with tragedy when it strikes. They're unable to repent of worldly thinking. They're unable to grow in humble Christ-likeness. They don't look like the church, which is the whole point. When Paul said, I couldn't treat you like spiritual people because you weren't acting that way. What's more, immature Christians are unable to give an answer for the hope that lies within them because they've thought and learned so little about that hope. And so they're evangelistically inept. God's people have to grow up, friends. Staying baby Christians isn't right. What ends up happening is they rely on what the world relies on. They keep doing what they've always done. And so the part they play in the church looks more like self-promoting, prideful competition rather than humble, Christ-like service to others. That's what was happening in Corinth, and it happens in churches all the time. God's people have to grow up. You and I need to mature and stop throwing a fit when we don't get our way. We need to stop forming our opinions of others based on gossip. We need to stop being hypocrites and judging ourselves better than other people. We need to grow up in our faith. We need to get serious. We need to study. We need to be discipled. And so Paul started with a rebuke, a rebuke that I hope lands here on us too, a rebuke that perhaps we need to hear today. Staying a baby Christian isn't right. That was the first knot in the rope he threw to them. But here's the second. In God's mercy, he has the apostle move to the second knot labeled reason. It's here in verses 
the second half of 3, all the way to verse 8, that Paul reasons with his friends, tries to convince them, this is, this is what he wants to convince them of, that hoping in men stunts your growth. Hoping in men stunts your growth. It's not right to stay babies in Christ, right? And you also can't place your hope in men or it'll stunt your growth. Paul returns to the topic he began to address back in the middle of chapter 1, right? You, you remember this. Divisions in the church caused by people exalting one Christian leader over another and disputing with those who saw things differently. The factions, the divisiveness. Once again, Paul cites this as proof positive of their immaturity, of them acting out of the flesh. Look at verse 4 there. When one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Now, we don't usually use human as a negative, right? But that's the way he's using it here. It's pejorative. It's like he's saying, are you not being unspiritual? Are you not being worldly? That's what he's meaning here. Back in chapter 1, in verse 10, Paul appealed to them to not be divided, but rather, listen now, rather be united in the same mind and the same judgment. That's how he approached it in chapter 1. Don't divide the church, but have the same mind, the same judgment. But where does that come from? How are we able to pull that off? Unity of mind comes from the renewing effect of the Word as we read it and meditate upon it, as we hear other people teach it to us, as we, as we do little Bible studies in our home, as we disciple our kids, as other people disciple us, as we give ourselves over to the Word, as we submit to it. It has this renewing effect of our mind. And it renews us to be thinking the same thoughts. These are, these are God's thoughts. I try to be, be explicit about that when I read it every week. This is God speaking. This comes from His mind, His words, His wisdom. When we submit ourselves to it, it shapes us all to think like He thinks. And so, so in chapter 1, he said, Hey, listen, you're supposed to have, all have the same mind. And Romans chapter 12 is one of those places you can go to. It specifically talks about this renewal of the mind, the, the effect of the Word has on us. Unity of thinking and judgment comes from our mind being washed with God's wisdom. And in the end of the last chapter, Paul had spoken, as I mentioned, that Christians are given access to his thoughts and also to his spirit so that we might understand those thoughts. We've been given even the verse right before our text. Look, look up just before the text division. But we have what? The mind of Christ. You better believe we should be thinking the same thoughts. Having the same judgment. God has given us the ability to be unified with Jesus to the extent that we can think like he thinks. Philippians chapter 2 tells us what that thinking looks like. It, it tells us that we should see ourselves as lowly. We should be humble, to be submissive to God's plan and to place the good of others above our own good. That was the, that, that was the, that was the mind of Christ in action as He came 
and made himself nothing. We should be walking in those thoughts. We should be thinking those thoughts. We should be growing in our agreement with those thoughts. But the Corinthians had been fleshly, not spiritual. They hadn't been leaning into the mind of Christ. They had been leaning into the mind of the world. They had remained in their childish, prideful thinking rather than growing up into Christ's humble approach to being in the church. They demanded to be seen as special. Man, I follow this dude. I'm somebody. You don't follow him. I'm better than you are. Trying to make distinguishing features, factions, divisions in the church so that they would look good. What they didn't do was seeing everyone in the church as having equal worth. In fact, having no worth in themselves, but equally rich in Christ's righteousness and His refining wisdom. I mean, all of us are deserving of God's judgment. You want to have a level playing field in your mind about how you see other people in the church? Just remember, God looked on you and said, there's no good thing in you. I'm going to have to slaughter my son to fix you. And that's for everybody. So we're all level at the foot of the cross. And our minds are always to be going there. Always to renewing our thinking to make sure that we're not starting to pick up worldly thoughts and judgments. Well, after reasoning with them, that division of the church is fueled by this kind of worldly jealousy and competition, Paul further reasons with them that rivalries in Christ's church are irrational. Rivalries in Christ's church are irrational. Paul uses himself and Apollos as, as gifted and used of God as they were in the advance of the gospel in the early church. Paul uses himself and Apollos, and he says that both of them are simply, you see it in verse 5? They're servants. Servants that, that God sent. It was God's doing. They, they were only there because God sent them. They did the job that they did because that's what God told them to do. They were, they were merely servants. Servants to be thankful for, to be sure. But not leaders to be put on pedestals and fought over. And I would just ask you, do you think the spirits may be doing some work in us on this point? Let's not run too quickly past this. Do we do that? Do we sort of put ourselves in little camps and, and try to judge ourselves better than other people? I mean, we could do this by people who have been here a long time. You might be thinking, you know, I really like this pastor that used to be here. I'm sort of his guy. What's going on today? No, nah, I don't think so. Or, or maybe you've got this this you know, huge vision in your mind of a church you used to go to, maybe the one you grew up in. Man, that was a church. Yeah. I'm, I'm of those people. I mean, I'm here because I'm here, but... Do you have any of that going on in you? I mean, there was a lot of rivalries um, happening last year. Is any of that still lingering? Friends, think, think about these things. It's irrational to have rivalries in God's church. Paul and Apollos, these are chief guys. If you go back and read Acts chapter 18, these are the two guys that led people to Christ and caused them to grow. 
And Paul's like, we're just servants of God. And, and that's what all Christian leaders are. While the Corinthian Christians had largely been converted and blessed through their respective ministries, through Paul and Apollos, they were, first of all, not in competition, but connected. The, look at the text. Verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered. They're on the same team. They're doing the same work. What do you think they planted and watered with? The gospel, God's word. What about verse 8? He who plants and he who waters are, what's the word? Are you looking at it? Verse 8, they're what? One. Yeah, I'd say they were connected, right? I mean, Paul says as much. We're all on the same team in the church. We're on the same mission. We're trying to win people to Christ together. We're, we're trying to help those who have already come to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. We're just all doing this together. We're on the same team. Now, some people are shirking their responsibilities. And some people think too highly of themselves when they do it. But regardless, we're on the same team. It's the same work. It's why we're desirous of helping other churches and gospel partners grow in our area. Because we don't see ourselves, this church, in competition with other churches. That's why we do things like Fellowship in the Gospel Conference coming up. We want to help the churches in our area mature. That's why we... That's why we host and send people to preaching and teaching workshops. That's why we partner with other churches to do like youth retreats and things like that. Like we're on the same team. We're not in competition with one another. Well, not only are Christian leaders on the same team, they're also, they're, they're also not worthy of your hope. That's why it's irrational for there to be factions in the Christian church. All Christian leaders, they're, they're together, they're connected, but also they're not worthy of your hope. Look at verse 6 there. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. That's where you put your hope. Right? Christian leaders, Christian workers cannot bring about spiritual birth. They can't bring about spiritual maturation. To see them as more than they are stunts your Christian growth. It, it, it causes you to plug into not the vine... Not the true vine that's Jesus, but the plants that are dead, lying on the cement. I don't know. They don't have any juice in them. Our growth comes in hoping in God, not in man. The work of Christian leaders, faithful servants, valuable work. Christ-honoring work. Noble work. In fact, it will be assessed by God and rewarded appropriately, we're told at the end of verse 8. But when it comes to our hope and allegiance, Christian leaders are nothing. Not even if they led us to Christ. Not even if they were instrumental in our spiritual maturation. Nothing when it comes to placing our hope. Our hope is only squarely placed, rightly placed on the one worthy of praise, the one that alone gives growth. Verse 7. Placing our hope in Him. Placing our hope anywhere else stunts our growth. It perverts our growth. It causes us to grow in worldliness, not in spirituality. God alone is to be praised. He is to be exalted and boasted about, yes. God is to be whose team we are on. And, and this is not only reasonable, friends. It's right. It's not only reasonable, it unites the church. 
God's people have to grow up. We need to abandon placing our hope in other people, even faithful Christian leaders. Doing so stunts our growth. It perverts our walk. It poisons the church. And so Paul reasoned with them, reasoned with the Corinthians. The second knot on the rope he threw to them. Remember, he's trying to pull them out of their infancy. You know, the first knot was, hey, you can't stay a baby Christian. It's not right. The second knot is, don't place your hope in even faithful Christian leaders. They cannot cause your growth, right? And now we finally move on to this last knot. Paul calls them to now remember. What, do they, what does he call them to remember? He wants them to remember who they are under God. And when they do, growth is on the horizon. And we find this just in this final verse in verse 9. It's sprinkled throughout the middle section too, but it's really prominent in this last verse. Remember who you are under God. That's where growth happens. First, those who sacrifice and work for God, right? I've said that's noble work. That's, that's treasured work in God's economy. Because it, but it's not because of the workers themselves. It's because that... It's because they are sent by God in His power. It all goes back to God. Look at the first half of verse 9. Paul says, we, who's he talking about? He's talking about like me and Apollos and other Christian leaders. He says, we are God's fellow workers. Those who work hard and sacrifice and prepare and provide for others, and there's lots of them in this church. There's lots of them in all of His churches. There was lots of them in Corinth, right? Those who work like this, they're sent by God. They're commissioned by God. Did you know that? It's not just, apolo- it's not just um, apostles that get sent, get commissioned by God. God commissions each of us in this church to work. We're sent by him into children's classrooms. We're sent by him out onto a snow-covered parking lot. We're, we're sent in different ways. We're sent to count the offering. We're sent to, you know, pray with people. We're, we're sent to counsel people when their marriages are in trouble. We're, we're sent by God. We're his fellow workers. Uh, just as God was with Joseph in Egypt... Christ promised to go with his people on the Great Commission. And the Great Commission doesn't only happen internationally. It happens here. We're united to him by faith and united to him in our work. As Paul wrote elsewhere in Philippians 2, work out your own salvation knowing it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So there's a little bit of debate about what God's fellow workers means. One camp says, well, it means that Paul and Apollos are fellow workers. The other camp says, it means all of the workers are co-workers with God himself. I'm not sure it makes any difference. Everybody that works for God, works out on the mission, is sent by him. Now, they're not God's equal. That's not the point. He's definitely over them. He's the master of the mission. But he also goes with them. Remember what Jesus said in the Great Commission? I have all the authority that there is in heaven and on earth, and I'm going to go with you as you go out into the world. Right? I mean, that's just got to give you great hope. 
That's got to that's lift the honor of what you do in Christ's church. But it also maybe brings conviction if you're not doing anything in Christ's church. Or if you're doing something in Christ's church, but you're doing it for selfish reasons. Any of that land? How are you serving in Christ's church? Are you, are you locking arms with God, as it were, and going out and working? It's honorable, noble, beautiful, necessary work. The glory doesn't go to you, but the honor of doing it is open to you. That's what, in fact, we're called to do. And it's how you grow up as a Christian also. You get out there and you work. You don't sit in a chair and watch everybody else do it. You get out there and do it. You, you give back to God using the resources that he's given you. Think about that, friends. Finally, not only are servants God's fellow workers, but the church itself is God's field and also God's building. That's the last couple of verses in the text. Now, you've got to just make sure you get the word field right in your mind there. It's not like, an, it, it's not like a virgin meadow or a, or a vacant lot. That's not what it's being talked about here. This is a cultivated field. This is a field for growing stuff, which makes sense given what he's been talking about up to this point. So both metaphors, whether it's planting in a field or building up a building until completion, both of them illustrate the same idea. The church belongs to God. It's his ministry, his people, his building, his field, and there's to be growing going on in them. We're to be built up to maturity, to stability, to health. There's no place for people that want to stay babies in God's church. Remaining as infants in Christ, it's not right, not one. Don't place your hope in wrong places like in mere men, not two, right? Place your hope in God. Remember who you are under God, what he's doing, what he's laid out before us as his people. We all need to grab that rope. We all need to think about these things because it's too easy for Christ's church to be fractured. We need to be unified. And the way we're unified is when we grow up together. So take a few moments of just quiet reflection over the Word, and perhaps the Spirit of God is is calling you to, to action, perhaps to repentance. Think about these things.